Hi, I'm Kasper Terkyle, and welcome back to The Nearness. This week, we're speaking with Rabbi Amachai Laulavi, who is a Jewish educator, writer, and performance artist, and one of just the most creative theologians that I have the pleasure to know. Amachai is the founder of Labshul, which is an artist-driven, everybody-friendly, God-optional, pop-up, experimental community for sacred Jewish gatherings right here in New York City. And he's done some incredible work on sacred storytelling and justice work. Amichai had a long career as a fabulous drag queen. Uh, he's in the middle of a wonderful project now called Below the Bible Belt, where he's rereading all 929 chapters of the Hebrew Bible and critically querying them. And I've just been so lucky to be in Amichai's home to celebrate Jewish holidays, and uh, he's become a very, very dear friend. And I think there's no one better to help us reinterpret uh, what the divine might be and, and to explore how the divine feminine might enliven all of our spiritual lives. So, Amachai, welcome to the Nearness, and thank you for being here. Hello, my dear friend and teacher, Casper. It is really a delight to be with you and to be near to the Nearness. I'm always just completely captured by some of the stories that you tell about how you grew up. And I, I want to land in this conversation by understanding when you were a little boy in Israel, what was God to you? Like, what was the divine? How, how did you grow up with that concept? Uh, what a beautiful question. I think on the one hand, the divine manifested as the Sabbath queen, a bizarre, beautiful Jewish concept. She descends, arrives, arises on Friday evening in Jewish homes and everywhere and anywhere where people pay attention. And she is the manifestation of time, of sacred time. Specifically in the home where I was growing up, a very religious, European-based, Holocaust-affected, Zionist uh, home, Friday afternoon would be the preparation for Friday night in which the table would be set and the silver is polished and the flowers are prepared and candles and food and shirts are ironed. And as a child, as a queer child, my assignment was to go get the flowers. It's unclear between my mother and, and I whose idea was this, hers or mine. But I remember as a little kid, four, five, six, the joy of going to pick flowers, the responsibility of putting them in the middle of the table as the the weekly feast is set. Now, I'm saying it's an image of God because only in retrospect would I understand that this somatic, embodied, aesthetic notion of a feast in which we don't really talk about the Sabbath queen because she is a feminine in a patriarchal Judaic religion, but we do. Some of the liturgy on Friday night alludes to a she and a he, a union of opposites and non-binary. And in my current practice, all those years later, where my Sabbath observance has changed so radically from the most strict uh, orthodoxy of my childhood, flowers are still a must on Friday. So I think that is absolutely a way to honor the divine. The other side of that coin, I would say that my father, um, who passed eight years ago, who was a Holocaust survivor, brought with him a, a deep legacy and heritage of rabbinic and Jewish leadership. 
And on our walls were hanging the photos of some of our ancestors, most prominently my grandfather, his father, who was a rabbi in Poland who died in the Holocaust leading his congregation. I remember as a little boy looking at my grandfather's searing eyes and thinking that that's God. So the ancestral worship on some way with the trauma and the tremendous uh, lineage somehow translated into this notion of, oh, ancestry, divinity. It took me years to understand that, no, my grandfather is not God, but of course a manifestation of the divine. We're here as two cis guys talking about the divine feminine, and I, I want to acknowledge that contextual reality. And I think there's something especially important for men to rediscover the divine feminine. And I'm I'm curious if that's something that you always had, as you talk about here, like that that growing up it was there, or is that something you kind of delved into as a scholar in your rabbinic training or or as a as an individual practitioner as someone who's who's led a rich life of of spirituality acknowledging the fact that we are indeed two males in this conversation i will say that for me from a very young age the notion of cross-dressing and drag was a playful and increasingly a sacred act of blurring identities and gendered um, identity. And um, only later understanding that what I'm delving into is two-spirit channeling of divine in a way that defies not just my body, but the body and plays with what we know drag today is dressed as a girl and Elizabethan theatrical trope that is sitting on a much older priestly tradition of blurring the, the boundaries. I don't want to get into my now discontinued drag career because she indeed gave me the chutzpah, which is, you know, Jewish Hebrew for courage and determination to be uh, countercultural, to be myself publicly, to be deeply spiritual, to be political, to be funny and talk about God and the divine in a way that I, Amichai, would not have. And after several years of embodying this particular presence, I felt like she was no longer necessary. I could do this minus the high heels. Just on that, this is resonating beautifully for me because whenever I, as a little kid, would create, and it's so funny that you mentioned flowers. I, I would sit outside in our garden and I would like, I would make a little tablecloth with like a dish towel and I would get a glass of water and like pick some, you know, like just little flowers that were growing in the grass and I would make a, make a little beautiful space. And I would always like create these robes and they were, I, I think they were always white because those were the bed sheets you know, that I was turning into robes. But there was this sort of like, at least gender queer presentation that that just came very naturally to me so i'm suddenly re like reassessing those memories just in the way that you're sharing this story of of finding access to the divine through through playing with gender whether it's as a little boy you know playing around or as like an adult really having this fabulous drag queen character emerge from inside of you I think our capacity for 
building altars and for connecting deeply to nature and for playfully fabricating reality as children and as grown-ups is one of the biggest gifts our imagination can offer us. And it penetrates the very firm, organized religion thing that has a lot of this beauty and ritual and aesthetics, but allows us to cut through it. And especially, I would say, in the queer context of defying the the rigid patriarchal heteronormative reality we're in, it's like, that's I'm going to go into the backyard and pick flowers and, and figure out my path. I hesitate to use the word pagan because it's so loaded, but obviously, you know, the word pagan means those who are not in town, those who are more connected to the earth than to the cement. This heathen way of being on the heath is is how I still and so many of us resonate with spirit and with the sacred sense of earth not our father who art in heaven our lives right here with a juicy messy mother earth so I want to say that growing up uh, in an orthodox household in Israel in the heteronormative Zionist colonial PTSD the whole shebang um, I was expected to live a religious life, to believe in the God of our ancestors. He is, for all purposes, male. The Hebrew language is gendered, and so all blessings, all prayers, with like a teeny, teeny fraction of of exception, is male-directed. And of course, males are the ones in front of the synagogue leading the worship, not women, ever. And women are behind the partition, because it's not co-ed. That's the relig- the orthodox religiosity I grew up with. And so rebelling against that uh, in my teens and 20s came hand in hand with my questioning my queer identity and knowing that according to the tradition of my ancestors in the Bible, I'm an abomination and therefore my choice is questionable at best. And also questioning the Israeli Zionist situation and beginning to understand that there's much more here than meets the eye. And what that led me over time is to begin my cultural archaeological work, which is saying, okay, here's what I got. Here are prayers. Here is the prayer book. Here is the Bible. Here is the law book. Some of it's beautiful. A lot of it feels suspect and uh, particular and parochial and fear-based, where I began to be exposed to possibilities of digging through the layers to go deeper and say, oh, that's what Sabbath is about. And underneath this male-dominated, angry Yahweh, actually, oh, wow, very different forms of the divine right there in the Bible, right there in the prayer book, right there in our mythology, in our lore. Alluded to, maybe mentioned, mostly denied or repressed. Here's an example. In the very beginning of Exodus, Moses, who's very reluctant to take on this Let My People Go campaign, is nevertheless seduced into leadership, as many of us are. And he says to the voice that calls him out of the burning bush, take it any way you want, uh, no, I can't, I won't, I, I'm heavy of mouth, I'm, I'm not the suitable leader. And by the way, who shall I say is calling, like your voice? And I don't get it. These people are used to gods and goddesses who have very impressive, you know, 
uh, depictions in stone, gold, and you know, you know, there. This is Egypt. We have gods and goddesses. Well, the hell are you? And the voice says, "Well, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, the rest of them, knew me as El Shaddai. That is the divine name used in Genesis. But we've gone through a rebranding process, and now my name is Yahweh. Now Yahweh is a distortion of the divine concept that is gorgeous, but." usually not unpacked, Yahweh, or we don't know how to pronounce it exactly, really means was, is, will be. Past, present, future. I am that I am. I will be that I will be. I am becoming. This is a verb, not a noun. Tell them this is who sent you. Constant fluidity becoming. Now, awesome, El Shaddai is a combination of masculine feminine el was the godhead of the canaanite pantheon the zeus of the canaanites from which the hebrew culture emerged and shaddai means my breasts or possibly my fields but this is the goddess whose great breasts feed and breastfeed humanity and the earth and el the godhead bam yin yang he, she, they, it, the divine. And so it's obvious that for our ancestors, the goddess was the queen of heaven. She was the mother earth. She was worshipped throughout. We know that from archaeology. We know that from mystical writings. We know this from scholarship into the layers of Hebrew lore and Canaanite lore and Egyptian and everything that was the Near East. And then at some point in our history, we know roughly when it was, probably the 5th, maybe 6th century BCE, the writers in the Davidic court in Jerusalem of a particular Judean take on spiritual and political life brought in patriarchy, brought in Yahweh, a single God, a masculine God, centralized in Jerusalem with a systemic kind of religion that brutally annihilated any other form of worship, including the sacred trees and the priestesses, including the sexuality and the body. The Bible is explicit in how this iconoclastic revolution went on and erased brutally and killed other forms of worshiping the divine, especially the feminine divine. And so the Judaism that we're left with is this crude, masculine, Jerusalem, Yahweh. Uh, let's throw out the bathwater and keep the baby and let's retrieve and reimagine what about this is everybody friendly, inclusive, sexy, affirmative. You know, Mother Earth is suffering because patriarchy and the Industrial Revolution have valorized our Father in Heaven, and reason over our parent, body, earth, and the heart. Obviously, your beautiful work knows that we're at the moment where there is a spiritual crisis. The majority of people in the West have been fed by a toxic diet of theology, and so we are in the emergency room. And a lot of it, for me, has to do about reimagining the divine.
you're you're reminding me. I just read Hilary Mantel's memoir, and she has this great couple of lines where she says, "History is what people try to hide from you, not what they're trying to show you. You search for it in the same way you sift through a landfill for evidence of what people want to bury." And I love the way you describe this real choice moment and that happens in in all sorts of religious contexts not just a jewish one where this patriarchal system is is imposed upon the myth and the ritual and the the, the religious culture that has come before i want to double click on where you started with with the sabbath queen because judaism still has this beautiful um memory and and tradition of the the shekhinah and i wonder if you could Tell us a little bit more about who she is and and how she lives in Jewish ritual. Like where where does she show up? Yeah, beautiful. I love that quote. By the way, um, it's exactly that. We're sifting through the the tell the mounds of constructed culture to to uh, piece together the, the pieces of the puzzle of our lives. There is a concept in the Jewish mythic body known as Shekhinah. Shekhinah means she who dwells within. It is gendered. But at the same time, it is not always gendered. It is the sense of presence. I would say the best translation I prefer for the word Shekhinah is energy. Right? The notion of energy. Ooh, there's good energy here. The brief, brief um, historical or cultural flowchart here is that at some point in our tradition from biblical onwards it is clear that when jews say god they mean adonai yahweh lord of hosts the dude with all the issues and the feminine divine is like not really there but in mystical lore there's this notion that at the at the bullseye of jewish reality inside the holy of holies of the temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in the year 70 CE by the Romans for the second time. In that bullseye, in the Holy of Holies, are the two cherubim, two griffins, two creatures. And those two creatures, very familiar to the Near East, are the guardians of the thresh of the sacred. And the story is that those two creatures made of gold are looking each other eye to eye, always. And in the place where those two sets of eyes meet, right in the middle of the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant, that's where she who dwells, dwells. Nobody sees it. It's like the two magnets activating the sacred energy of existence. And this image of intimacy that at the heart of our most sacred realm, in the middle of this thing called temple, are these two creatures face-to-face, eye-to-eye, as an invitation for us to discover intimacy. And remember that we're all in divine image. When you look into someone else's eyes with intention, there's Shekhinah, the divine presence, right there. Intimacy is the heart of the human spiritual sacred experience. She also shows up in many, many ways as the depiction or the projection of the divine. So one of them we mentioned, the Sabbath queen. Now the Sabbath queen is alluded to in the Talmudic text of some 2000 years ago as like a metaphor for the Sabbath. 
Sabbath is a 25-hour period that happens from Friday night till Saturday night. You stop working. You're less of a human working and you're more of a human being. Flowers and prayers, home, family, intention on being, not doing, blah, blah, blah. And at some point, this notion of the Sabbath queen or the Sabbath bride enters the liturgy. And there is a poem that was created in the 1600s as the Kabbalistic, the mystical Jewish voice really took uh, hold uh, of the universal Jewish practices, partially in response to the trauma of the expulsion from Spain um, in 1492. A lot of the exiles from this golden age of living with Muslims and Christians in, in, in confidence and abundance and boom, suddenly comes this exile. Um, from that crisis came a new way to imagine the sacred. And this poet, uh, Shlomo Al-Kabetz, writes the song called Lechadodi Likrat Kala, Go Beloved Towards the Bride. And it is sung in every synagogue these days on Friday evening as the Sabbath queen is ushered in. And there is a gorgeous tradition that nobody quite identifies the root of, where during this song, people get up during the last stanza where we say, come in peace, you who are the crown of all. And we bow to the back door, to the west, because synagogues face east. You bow to the sunset. You bow to the door, literally. And it's like we bow to Her Majesty the Queen as she comes in. Now, I love unpacking this moment when we lead our uh, monthly Sabbath Queen, which is how we celebrate the Sabbath at Labshul. And first of all, it's choreography. It's yoga. You bow. B, you acknowledge mystery. Of course, she doesn't show up. Like you don't see her, but there she, it, they, we are. A little more regal, a little more in our bodies, a little more present. And I invite people to bow to each other and find the divine in each other's face. So there she is, the Shekhinah, the divine presence. And she shows up in a bunch of other um, references throughout Jewish life when people study together as we are now she shows up. When people make love together with really seeing each other, not objectifying each other, she shows up. So this is a nod to our ancient matriarchal, pre-patriarchal power of the goddess, of the mother. And as we're moving slowly, slowly, painfully through this post-patriarchal moment, I think it's clear that whatever she's manifesting is it's not necessarily gendered. It's not like the goddess is going to replace God. Like, yes and no. Something else is emerging. And in the meanwhile, yes, the feminine. Yes, the human body. Yes, the right of women to have authority over their bodies. Yes, the beauty and the voice of people who are not meant to take over religious leadership. Thank you, your eminence, the Pope and the chief rabbis. But like, you guys, time's up. So something is happening. I don't think it's not accidental that so many queer people are now in spiritual leadership positions all over the world. You, you make me weepy and like you have such a gift of helping, helping us learn what it can be and what it has been and what it might yet become. I, I love, I think, a very hard, hard fought vision that you have for for the jewish tradition but for for spirituality generally it just it it's so spacious and beautiful and inviting and i just want to like 
go bow with you to the western door, you know, as the Sabbath queen arrives. So thank you for sharing that. Tell us more about the Shekhinah. Sounds like there's there's more there. Oh, there's so much there. There's so much there. I mean, again, to say that we're living in this exquisite privilege where so many scholars and and worshipers and artists are reimagining the divine feminine and the divine in ways that, that help us get over the allergic trauma that we've had from the, the, the punishing God of many of our childhoods. So I want to share with you a brief story. About a decade ago, just a little bit over a decade ago, uh, my father uh, in his mid-80s was ailing and beginning to lose his memory and his physical mobility. And as a very strong Superman who indeed survived the Holocaust in terrible situations and great resilience in his teens, there was this man for whom fragility was not an option, uh, losing it. And he was not in the best of tempers if they were living in Jerusalem. And I was just visiting and I was both jet lagged and pissy for whatever reason. And I sat with him in the kitchen and I asked him, I mean, he was really, he was declining. It was very difficult for my mother. And I asked him, I said to him, look, you're, you're unbearable. You're not getting out of bed. Like you're just sitting here with no drive. It's driving everybody nuts. You can still walk. You can still talk. Your heart is working. Your mind is working. Yes, you're not working anymore. Rather brusquely, I asked him, do you have any unfinished business? Is there anything you want to devote your time to? <laughs> he kind of looked at me and he said, yes. And he pointed with his finger up to the ceiling. And he said, in Hebrew, I have a few questions to you know who about you know what. And I said, okay, I'm here for a few months. How can I help? And what ended up happening was a series of recorded conversations between us. I brought a little audio tape and his questions, thoughts, musings, our conversations about faith, about his questions to God about the Holocaust. Now, this is a man who chose, and part of it came up through our conversations, in the aftermath of Buchenwald, where he was liberated, together with his younger brother, learning the fate of his family, all were killed, witness to this human-made hell, um, how he made a choice to remain religious, orthodox, and to keep on praying, and to keep on the Sabbath, and to be an orthodox. And throughout my life, he would insist that we would put on the tefillin in the morning and do the thing. And he was aghast when I became gay, became gay, A, because, of course, you know, it's not how we do things, but also because it was a religious breach. Um, but here he is in his 80s, and he's asked, he wants to ask God, like, what the hell? Like, WTF, basically. How could this have happened? Don't you love us? Aren't we supposed to be rewarded for obedience? Like, oh, that big question. That according to him, he never really allowed himself to ask. He woke me the next day, got up early. He had energy and he said, I thought about it. I want to have these conversations. I want to call them the four questions. It led me down a, a furious search of theodicy and looking at all the philosophers and theologians who, who asked these questions of like, how can there be a God in the cancer ward and in Hiroshima and in Auschwitz and right next door when domestic abuse happens? Like, Then I found one really important book, and that's what I want to focus on. And I was able to share it with him, even though he wasn't so into it. 
Um, so I'm holding up a book just for your benefit, and I'll tell you the title. This is a book by a British theologian whose name is Melissa Raphael, and the book is titled, ready? Take a breath. The Female Face of God in Auschwitz, A Jewish Feminist Theology of the Holocaust. Wow. So Melissa Raphael is enormously important thought leader and rarely acknowledged. And what she says is the following. Many theologians have claimed that in the horrors of Auschwitz and Hiroshima, the God that we knew died. The patriarchal God of the Bible, if you do well, it will rain. The conditional love Yahweh died in this hell. And so much discord came out of the Second World War to throw us into the where we are now for better and for worse. Feminist revolution, the queer revolution, the sex revolution, the beginning of climate consciousness and upheaval, NATO and the reimagination of colonization, you know, the appreciation for the dreadful cost of racism and colonialism and the beginning of shift, etc., etc. Second World War was very instrumental. And according to some mytho-theological premise, the God we knew died. Melissa says something else. Yes, that's true. Something in our notion of the divine died. But another notion of the divine emerged out of the horror. And that is the Shekhinah, the divine feminine presence. Melissa Raphael interviewed many survivors and she asked them, did you have at any point during this horror, a sacred moment, a spiritual moment, did you meet God? And in her interviews, she keeps getting these responses from people who say, yes, when another human being held my hand. And so the Shekhinah, the divine presence, is not the superhero who comes down to save the day and make sure there are no more earthquakes or floods, mass shootings or cancer. No. The divine feminine shows up when we show up. She, they, it, we, he shows up when we show up. And so the notion of the divine presence showing up as a way to be present with us at the moments of greatest joy and greatest pain, that's a divine concept that I can get behind. To my father's questions, how could you be? My answer has always been, but now grounded in Melissa's research is this is Gaia. How do you find kindness? How do you find each other's humanity? How do you find divinity in each other's eyes, even in the middle of our worst pains? Can we have that sense of resilience and spiritual vocabulary to help us make sense? I was able to share a little bit of this with my father. Um, it was so beyond his mindset that I don't think he fully appreciated it. And also he was declining. But the one year anniversary of his death, I published a booklet. Uh, in which those four questions in Hebrew were articulated. And I'm hoping in the next few years to have the time to translate it into English and add my, my response to those four questions based a lot on Melissa Raphael's research. The Shekhinah for me, the divine presence, is an invitation to be present. And that works for my agnostic friends and for my very ultra-religious family. Like, can we just redefine this as in the presence of being present.
I, I just so love that image of these two kind of statues looking at each other. That, that The way to make that sense of energy and presence and consciousness and connection embodied in a altar-like space, to make a sacred space where it's not about this golden sphinx or calf or, you know, angel, whatever it is, but it's about this interaction, these two gazes meeting one another. Um, it's astonishing. Astonishing, Amachai. And what a what a privilege to to sit down with your father in those final times and take seriously the questions that he was still battling. And for him to see, you know, whether he vibed <laughs> with this particular theological notion or not, for him to be heard, because it sounds like in those conversations, you had that eye-to-eye connection. To a degree, yes. I think all the baggage of father-son conversation. But yes, I think for many of my, my immediate biological family, uh, sharing that booklet a year later, it was just shocking. It was like, whoa, we don't talk about theology. Like, you know, we don't talk about Bruno. We don't go there. Um, but luckily, um, I don't need their approval or appreciation to know that this is precious metal from the heart of the furnace. It is informing so much of how I parent in my weird queer family, uh, how I serve as a spiritual leader in my community, inviting people to be present and to take on the patriarchal model of religiosity, which is um, really just painful. Um, we're, we're recording this conversation in January 2023, and in my home country of Israel, the extreme ultra-right has taken over in the name of the biblical God, in the harshest, cruelest definition of what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be religious and to hold on to so-called tradition in complete denial of the human dignity and freedom and justice that everybody deserves. Um, there's a lot at stake here. Like, you know, the, the goddess is just like, hear me roar. And patriarchy is fighting hard. No doubt. I mean, it's it struck me so much learning about you know, within the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States, the most uh, pro-Trump evangelicals were the ones who were least likely to actually attend a congregation. And so this this intertwinement of, of dominance, patriarchy, and religion, but really in name more than in practice, right? There's very little vulnerability. There's very little connection. There's certainly no eye-gazing to, to, to be present to that energy um it's it's alive and well and and no doubt fighting back but amachai i want to ask you because one of the things i respect about you so much you take risks in ways that other people look at you and think like who is this guy <laughs> what is he doing Be because it doesn't make sense in their world view but in yours there's such an aliveness to this much richer deeper divinity that it makes total sense and I would love to hear from you, like, what does what does connecting with the divine look like for you in practice? Um, first of all, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the great mulberry tree in the yard across from mine that all through those many long, long months of Corona has been my ally in hope. 
and she's now bare and the branches are being rained on, but she'll be green again. And I have lived here just a few years to see the seasons. Uh, trees really matter. Watching them, hugging them, helping them thrive. Gardening is really important. It's, a, it's one of my pastimes that has become really sacred time to be paying attention to, to the earth and to its murmurings and plants and plant medicine in its many ways. These are all alleyways and portals into the sacred, into the divine mother. My morning meditation um, is a thing and uh, includes some Judeo, but mostly just meditative ways of being in the body and being attuned, beginning with gratitude, moving into wonder, noticing what hurts and asking for help. Stretching, the divine is in the body. So those are morning practices. And then I feel um, the invitation is constantly to co-create and generate these sacred circles where we are present, where we are invited to gaze into each other's eyes, to gaze into our own soul, to be more present. And some of it is done under the guise of the Jewish community that I've co-created, which is increasingly Jewish and more human. Um, and some of it is done in queer circles, and some of it is just done when we do a dinner party, where every opportunity is an opportunity to be sitting at an altar. And so not to take these things for granted, if it's your morning coffee or if it's your Sabbath ritual, are uh, invitations to let the divine imminence be imminent and not squander our precious time. Am I walking that talk all the time? Of course not. But um, aspirationally. <laughs> I'm so struck by this notion that you, you shared earlier of the Shekhinah as the, the, the goddess of time. And the way in which you're describing whether it's a dinner party or the stretching or like it's make it's making space in time like there's this um luxuriating nearly in presence uh and i heard recently someone say look everyone has a to-do list but we also need a to linger list like what are the things in the day where i just want to stay with it for longer than i need to and i'm i'm just hearing that echo of like that sacredness, that presence, Shekhinah, like the 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 beauty of 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 lingering in these practices, and um, I think for me, what's what's most important is that yes, it's the practice itself, but it's then who we become when we practice these things: more courageous, more imaginative, more more compassionate. And I I see that in you. I I, I admire that so much. I want to ask you maybe one final question, which, you know, for people who are listening to this, many of whom won't be Jewish, many of whom have grown up with similar concepts of the divine that felt at least alienating, if not downright, you know, um, degrading nearly. What is what is the the word that you would leave us with to to continue trying to find her, she, they, wonderful divine like how how do we keep keep listening for that whisper that's incredible casper the word that came to me was whisper <gasps> huh. beautiful in hebrew lachash lachash i think it's something about hearing i love that this is a podcast this is about hearing this is not about visions 
And it's clearly about listening, deeper listening to the whispers that the trees and the wind and our hearts and the rustles of our ancestors communicate. And we're cultivating the art of being present enough, quiet enough to be able to listen. Mm. Well, thank you for helping us do exactly that, Amachai. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you, my dear. You always generate the most thoughtful and heartfelt circles of presence. And I'm grateful for all of that and this one as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nearness. To learn more or to sign up for our next small group journey, visit thenearness.coop.